from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Arthur Dahl on January 22, 2017. Arthur worked in the field of sustainable development for over 50 years. He worked for many years for the United Nations Environment Program and a consultant to international organizations and research programs on environmental assessment, observing strategies, indicators of sustainable development, coral reefs, biodiversity, islands, environmental education, and social and economic development. During the interview, we talk about his work at UNEP, his early work in his career, and his involvement in two Baha'i-inspired organizations, the International Environment Forum and the organization Ethical Business Building in the Future. I started the interview by asking Arthur where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up in a area that was known for its fruit orchards that is now called Silicon Valley. I was born in Palo Alto, California at Stanford University, but in the 1940s and 50s, it was not quite the same place that it is today. So it has changed a great deal. One of our neighbors, Bill Hewlett, was tinkering with on electronic things with the name of Packard. So uh, it was just the very beginning of what became a very different kind of place. But at the time, it was a suburban area, and say partly agricultural. So we'd go for walks in the hills behind Stanford and look at the cows grazing and things like the things that would be difficult to do today. But I grew up in a Baha'i family, and so I didn't have to go looking for the Baha'i faith. It was sort of naturally around me. And so my my life there, will be, I went to, you know, to schools where we, you know, sort of progressive education and learned to speak French at a very early age and things like that. In many ways, some of the strongest memories of my childhood were in the summers when we would go to the Baha'i summer school at Geyserville, north of San Francisco, and encounter Baha'is from other parts of the western United States. It's like everybody gathered there. There weren't so many in those days. So it was quite a nice childhood from that point of view. Then my parents decided to move away from San Francisco down to the Monterey Peninsula further south on the California coast. And so at 12, I was sent to boarding school for a year down there while I prepared to move the family. And that was in a natural area, a forest full of of trees. There were horses to ride and chances to go down to the beach. And so you know, a chance of discovering nature close up was an important part, you know, even even in my childhood and, and my youth experience. Even at the Baha'i Summer School, we would go down to the beach and learn about nature and things like that with a wonderful Baha'i naturalist named Vincent Brown, who had written books like the Amateur Naturalist Handbook, How to Make a Home Nature Museum. So I stuffed my first gopher when I was 10 years old and was interested in, in natural things even from that early age. One of the basic tenets of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth. Being raised as a Baha'i, can you note a time when you had realized that the Baha'i faith was your religion and not so much the religion that, that's just your heritage, let's say? I think it was probably a whole series of stages. As you grow up, you ask questions at different levels and explore at different levels. One of my earliest strong Baha'i memories 
was going to a conference in 1953 in Chicago where they were dedicating the Baha'i House of Worship in, in Wilmette and also launching what was called uh, the Tenure Crusade, a, you know, a call to take the Baha'i faith to all the countries of the world that didn't yet have any Baha'is. And I can remember sitting in the front row and seeing people that I knew going up and, and volunteering to go to some far-off place that I wanted to go. But at the age of 10, it was not quite something that was possible. But from that time forward, one of my goals in life was say, I want to grow up and be able to help the people in other parts of the world, help in the developing countries, and so on. And many of my career choices were, in fact, within that framework, that desire to ultimately be able to go and serve the people of the world who needed it the most. When I was sent out of the boarding school, there were no Baha'is in the area, and I was just there with my brother. So what do we do on Sunday except, you know, go to church? So, you know, we went to church, but I found the, the Sunday, Sunday school totally boring after what I experienced in the Baha'i community. So I went to the, the sermons. At least that was more interesting than, than going to the, to the Sunday school. When I was at Stanford University as a student, we had a little Baha'i club. One year, I was the only Baha'i in the club, but we still tried to have some activities and share the Baha'i principles. There was never a separation between my being Baha'i and other things like, you know, finding a career and things like that, the two fit together. And in fact, I chose biology, partly because that's something I experienced all through my growing up. But I chose ecology as a branch of biology long before it was the popular thing to do because it seemed like something that would be useful in helping developing countries around the world. It would be easier to go and live and work in a developing country working in something like ecology where you could be working in the field rather than needing an electron microscope and other kinds of equipment that we wouldn't find in many other parts of the world. So I actually chose my specialization in part saying this is something that would be useful for the kind of career that I might want to, to have ahead. And in fact, you're already thinking about what I might need to become, say, an environmental advisor to governments. And this is in the early 1960s, which is before this was really developing as a career. I sort of thought, well, what do I need to study? A little bit of anthropology and psychology and a bit of economic development, along with my, my work in biology, would be the kind of you know, thing that would give me a, a breadth of focus that would be helpful in trying to create a career that didn't yet exist. So your work started in the area of sustainable development and the environment. What was the earliest work that you had done, let's say, after you had completed your education? As an undergraduate at Stanford, my sophomore year, I went to, to France to study. There was a Stanford in France program. And one of the courses there was about economic development, which you know, gave me an additional part of what I needed to in thinking about where I was going to be going. Well, I did my graduate work in the University of California at Santa Barbara in marine biology. Again, I chose marine biology because it was something that really attracted me. But I was also looking at you know the kind of career I might want to develop. And basic research interested me. But when I finished my doctorate in marine biology and ecology, I was offered a chance to have a postdoctoral fellowship at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, the United States National Museum. And my professor had specialized in the seaweeds under the Antarctic ice. I didn't like cold water. I didn't really even like swimming so much. So uh, when I went to the Smithsonian, I said, well, I should specialize in coral reefs because the water was warm and they were in, in, in tropical developing countries. So there'd be other kinds of opportunities. And scientifically, trying to understand how these very complex systems worked was really the application of Baha'i principles in science, looking at unity and diversity and, and cooperation and symbiosis. And, you know, all of these things that I'd naturally seen as where the world needed to go from a Baha'i perspective. You could see nature was doing it already in these complex systems like coral reefs. 
So again, it was a, a harmony between my, my spiritual values and my interest in science that took me, took me in that direction. Then uh, my first year there, my postdoctoral year, the governor of Samoa came to the nice museum and said, I think I have environmental problems. I don't know what they are. Can somebody come and tell me what they are? This was in 1969, where they were sort of beginning, you know, the Environmental Protection Act was, was being passed, and they were just beginning to talk about these issues. And I thought, well, I could do my research as easily in Samoa as in Panama, where the Smithsonian had a field station. So I said, well, I'll come to Samoa. And so off I go, and as a you know, young postdoc, he gave me the government's house to live in along the beach and a government car to take me around for my, my research, setting up long-term uh, studies of what was, how the reefs were changing over time. And at the same time, I volunteered to do a report for him as an environmental problem. So I wasn't paid for it. It was just something I could, could do to help. And uh, that sort of got me you know, sort of a practical start. And there was a Baha'i in Samoa who told me about a regional intergovernmental organization called the South Pacific Commission of all the island countries. And he said, they should have somebody like you working for them. So I wrote the commission and said, you know, I was looking for a job after my postdoc, you know, would you like to hire an ecologist? And they responded, in fact, they just had a meeting on nature conservation that suggested maybe they should have somebody specialized in the area at the commission, would I apply? So I applied, but they didn't get the money for the job, so that fell through, and the museum hired me on a permanent lifetime contract you know, the government employee doing any research one anywhere in the world, as long as I was publishing papers, they were happy. I couldn't ask for a better job in my field. And so I was diving all over the world on coral reefs in Panama and living in an undersea habitat off the coast of Puerto Rico and going around the Pacific, looking at reefs in the Pacific and in the Red Sea and, and so on. Five years later, I get a message from the commission. We now have money for the job you applied for. Are you still interested? And given that my hope had always been to go and work in developing countries, I resigned from my post at the Smithsonian and were off to become regional ecological advisor to 22 small island countries in the Pacific, based in New Caledonia, a French island in the middle of the, of the Pacific. It was a combination of my scientific interest, my desire to be of service to the nations of the world, and the, the fact that Baha'is were needed in those places, and I could also be doing things for the Baha'i faith, meant that that was sort of a natural step to take in my career. So was there some adjustment that you had to make to all of a sudden, and I assume you were based in Washington, D.C., to yes. then being in uh, a small little Pacific island in Caledonia? There was you know, obviously an adjustment because you're in a very different lifestyle, but then, I mean, New Caledonia is a French island where you can find French cheeses, and you know they've brought all the good life with them to their islands in the Pacific. Uh, the other thing that happened was shortly after my arrival, there was a young Baha'i there, also a biologist by training, uh, who'd come from France. It didn't take very long before we fell in love and got married. So, uh, you know, I had settled there. I spent there 11 years there. We started a family, had children, and so on. But at the same time, you know, I was traveling all across the region, learning more about traditional island cultures, because that was very important, not to be just bringing something in from outside, but saying... You know, your ancestors were sensitive about the environment and took care of their resources because they depended on them for their survival. So this is really going back to the values your ancestors had and not just something that is coming from outside. And yes, there are new things that science can bring to help you understand this, but it is also something that is, you know, part of, of, of their own heritage. And so, you know, I started all by myself and by the end of my service there, I had built a regional environmental program the Pacific Region Environment Program, 
which then became an intergovernmental organization and now has a staff of about 100 and is doing activities all across the region, is, is based in Samoa. And so the small start of what I was able to do there gradually bore fruit in becoming an important mechanism for the countries of the region to be more sustainable. So what was the next step in your career and why did you move on from the uh, island regional environmental? Well, it was a combination of things. It was a wonderful thing to be doing, helping to build a Baha'i community in New Caledonia, but also working with communities all across the region. And in fact, the Baha'i faith was very helpful at times. When I first went to Kiribati, uh, the little atoll country, the government arranged meetings with the various ministries and so on. But the Baha'is came and said, but in their traditional culture, an important visitor should go to a village, which was the first village on the island, and meet with the chiefs and explain the purpose of their visit and be welcomed in custom fashion into their culture. And the government paid no attention to that anymore. So the Baha'is took me out the first evening, and I met with the chiefs and explained the work I was coming to do on the environment and on coral reefs, and I was welcomed in custom fashion into their culture. So when I went out to do my field work in the different islands, the word had gone ahead. I was not just another expert coming from outside. I had respected their culture, and the cooperation I got was very different from what it would have been had I not had you know, that assistance from the Baha'i community. And in many places, you know, this happened across the region. But ultimately, the governments decided that nobody should stay more than six years with the commission. And I'd already been there eight years, and I was just launching this regional program when that decision was taken. So it was clear I couldn't necessarily stay forever, that my job would have to come to an, come to an end. And so we wrote to the Baha'i World Center saying, where are we most useful? So staying at our place in Caledonia, going to another island, you know, so on. And the advice that came back was, please try to settle in a French-speaking country, including France, and work the relation between the Baha'i community and the United Nations, and thank you for your services in the Pacific. So it was sort of very clear guidance that I shouldn't, we shouldn't try to stay there. So we moved back to France, and I began developing work with the United Nations to see how I could continue to build that relationship. And then a few years later, I was on a consultancy with the United Nations Environment Program in Nairobi, and I'd always been told, you're an American, you have no chance to work for the UN, there are too many Americans already in the UN. And one day the director calls me in and says, we're looking for an American as deputy head of our program, would you apply? So I quickly put in an application, but I also wrote to the Baha'i World Center, saying I have this chance for the job in the United Nations, what are the priorities? And two weeks later, the director called me and said, you're number one on the short list, because I already built regional programs and it was exactly what they wanted somebody to do. And 20 minutes later, I got a telegram from the Baha'i World Center. It's meritorious to take a job in the United Nations system. So again, I'd say the path was clear. You know, I was hired by the United Nations as deputy director of the Oceans and Coastal Areas Program and began in the second half of my career, so to speak, working within the United Nations to help governments to address their environmental problems and work for sustainability. So this was the position of deputy assistant executive director of the UN Environmental Program? Well, it evolved because I was first deputy director of the Roaches Coastal Areas Program Activity Center. And then after several years there, I was moved to Geneva to take on the role of coordinator of the UN System-wide Earth Watch. It was the time of the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. And so the UNEP loaned me to secretariat. So I was actually in the secretariat organizing the summit and helping to write its action plan, Agenda 21. I was given the Oceans and Coastal Areas chapter to write. And then after that assignment, the UNEP said, we'll stay in Geneva and take on responsibility to help to implement the action plan, particularly information decision-making in Chapter 40. And so I was moved from Nairobi, Kenya, to Geneva 
to become the coordinator of UN system-wide Earthwatch, which was actually working with 50 parts of the United Nations system. At that point, they were short of staff in Nairobi, so they said, will you also become deputy director of the Division of Early Warning and Assessment, which was the position of deputy assistant executive director. So I was promoted to that rank as well at the same time. For several years, I helped run the division in Nairobi while I was based in Geneva, along with my work in coordinating the UN system-wide Earthwatch and doing a number of other things that were related to that, working with the space agencies, organizing their satellite programs, coordinating international research programs on the on the environment, on climate change, on ocean problems, on terrestrial problems, and so on. So it was quite an exciting time helping the whole UN system to implement the decisions that have been taken at the Rio Earth Summit, you know, to move the, the world towards sustainability. So what is the mission of the UN Environmental Program? It was actually set up uh, in 1972 at the United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, one of the very first thematic conferences in the United Nations, where I was sent as representative of the Baha'i international community. So they sent an ecologist to rep- you know, to see what the Baha'is could do to contribute to this process already in 1972 in, in Stockholm. There I sort of began my contacts with UNEP. And so when I began working in the Pacific in 1974, I went to visit UNEP headquarters in Nairobi to build contact and communications and collaboration with what I was doing in the Pacific and what they were doing at a global level because their mission was to help the whole UN system to take on the environment you know, as a theme that it should be paying attention to. It was not just to do things just on the environment by itself, but become a catalytic structure that would help the Food and Agriculture Organization to bring environment into food and agriculture and fisheries, to help UNESCO look at environmental dimensions of its work with science and education, UN industrial organization on environment and industry, and so on. It was already working across all parts of the United Nations system to make certain that the environmental agenda became an important part of what the United Nations was doing. And that's still, in many ways, its function today. It's set up international conventions on things like climate change and biodiversity and protecting the ozone layer and dealing with toxic chemicals and hazardous wastes in international trade and so on. So it had a whole series of functions developed over the years as, you might say, the the voice for the environment in the United Nations system and helping the nations of the world to take on their environmental responsibilities and learn how to live within planetary limits. Are you still working for UNEP? Well, they made me retire. I reached retirement age, oh, what, 14 years ago now. So I had to retire. I kept my office there for eight years after retirement because I was helping them on a number of projects that they had nobody else to work on. And then I set up with them a training program in environmental diplomacy for mid-career diplomats with the University of Geneva and UNEP together. For several years, we trained teams of diplomats during the, the summers. And I've still had projects with them. I just recently helped to write the Global Environmental Outlook for Europe report, looking at sustainable development goals. And I helped UNEP also see how these new sustainable development goals that were adopted by the UN in 2015 relate to their own work program to adapt their program to take on these new responsibilities. So yes, I still have projects as a consultant from time to time with UNEP. I've also done a lot of work with the World Bank, helping the World Bank to develop appropriate indicators of their work and uh, address some new, you might say, some more values-based ways their work with developing countries. And then I worked with, with other organizations as well. So one of the organizations I believe you worked with was the International Environment Forum. Can you tell me what that is? 
as a Baha'i and somebody involved in the environment, I was getting more and more requests from communities to talk on these subjects or to help with projects and things like that. And I just couldn't keep up with all of the requests. I thought, well, we need to find some way to build more capacity to bring the Baha'i values together with what needs to be done for environmental sustainability in solving the problems of the world. At a time when another Baha'i had come to work near me in the offices here in Geneva, we were talking about it and said, well, maybe we could set up some kind of a Baha'i-inspired organization for environment and sustainability. And then the different people around the world who are working on these issues, who are also Baha'is, interested in the Baha'i values, could get together and share their experience and take this forward. And so we created this International Environment Forum more than 20 years ago now as a Baha'i-inspired organization. And it has gradually grown over the years. It's a virtual organization. We don't collect money. We don't have funds or ask for dues. We try to be of service. But we now have 370 members in 70 countries, most of them professionally involved in some area of environmental sustainability. We try to, to be of service, providing these ideas, producing pieces and, and information documents, maintaining a website with all sorts of resources on environmental sustainability and a spiritual perspective, collaborating with, with other faith groups as well on interfaith activities, uh, running training courses uh, with the Wilmette Institute, for instance, on sustainable development, on climate change, and, and now on agriculture from a high perspective. In other ways, we've been accredited by the United Nations to the big international conferences. We organized some events at the World Sustainable Development in Johannesburg in 2002. We were again active at the Real Plus 20 Summit in 2012 in Rio de Janeiro, organized several side events there. We had four side events at the Climate Change Conference in Paris in 2015, where they adopt the Paris Agreement. And so we had events looking at how do you hold governments accountable for the things they're signing up to in these agreements? And how do you make communities more resilient at the local level? And looking at the example of some Baha'i communities, say in Vanuatu and the South Pacific and, and elsewhere, through their Baha'i activities, had learned to become more self-reliant and resilient. And when they were faced with a problem like a terrible cyclone destroying much of the island, the junior youth, the young people, immediately got to work cleaning up the roads and helping the old people find what positions were left and uh, replanting the fields that had been damaged and so on and so forth because they had learned how to be of service and how to, to help others when that was needed. And they just kept on doing that when there was a catastrophe in their community. And we looked at education as well. We were very involved in, in educational activities. We've helped you develop these online courses. We have several courses available on our website for anybody who wants them. We just helped produce a set of toolkits in values-based education for secondary schools for teachers who want to bring more values into the classroom and this important dimension of the change we need in society, how they can develop indicators of this work, how they have exercises they can do with their students to show the importance of values and so on. So it's an organization that even though it has no money, is able to do a lot of things that are constructive and useful in society and are able to support what's needed in different parts of the world. In fact, our last conference last October was in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, where discussion across Latin America about how to implement the sustainable development goals at the individual and community levels. And so we organized a conference on that theme and we had participation from a representative in, in the region, from some experts in Europe and across South America, and had some very useful discussions on the ways in which, we, again, our values can help us to take this important agenda forward 
in communities at the individual level. We even sort of rethought the same development goals, which are adopted by governments at a very high level. But say, how could these be looked at as each individual's you know, own goals? I mean, one of them is eliminating poverty. So, is there poverty in my community? What can I do to address poverty in my community? Is this an individual responsibility as well as something that governments are doing at some high level? These are the kinds of discussions that we organize in the International Environment Forum. There's another organization you are involved with I'd like you to tell us about, and that's the Ethical Business Building the Future. Yeah, it's a bit like the Environment Forum, but it was set up more than 25 years ago now by a group of business people who were Baha'is and said, well, with our values as Baha'is, we really should be doing business differently, not just to make money, but also to be of service. You know, there are Baha'i values that would seem to be relevant and important to business, you know, everything from honesty and trustworthiness and, and, and integrity to gender balance and, uh, and even sustainability. And so they had a little meeting here in Europe, got together, organized their little organization, originally called European Baha'i Business Forum, and it gradually grew and spread and attracted more and more business people, not all of them Baha'is. I think about a third of the membership are people who are not Baha'is, but interested in the Baha'i values and the ethical approach to business. It is again. It has annual conferences and has produced materials on its website and organizes all sorts of dialogues and events in different places. As with Environment Forum, it's another area where, within a professional field, Baha'is said we really need to be doing this differently and applying our Baha'i principles to our professional lives. But how do we accompany each other in that process? How do we learn from experiments people are doing, new ways of applying values and making it work in the business framework? And in the same way, the Environment Forum has been scientists and others working on an environmental field saying, how do we apply our science to these challenges in our professional areas? Can we find ideas in the Baha'i writings and spiritual values and principles that can they suggest new ways of doing things, more constructive ways of doing things in our professional field? And so I think both of them have been organizations that have done that you know, quite effectively. In fact, I was never much interested in business, and I didn't really want to join the EBBF, but they sort of twisted my arm and said, we'll make you an honorary member because they wanted to bring sustainability into what they were doing. And I wanted to learn how did they work so I could do the same thing for the environment and sort of copied some of their ideas in creating the International Environment Forum. And then, of course, sort of by accident, I got elected to the board of directors at UVF. And so I've been on the board of both organizations for many, many years. And each has been sort of complementary in the work that I've been doing. But in both cases, quite specifically saying, what can we draw from the wisdom of Baha'u'llah and the Baha'i teachings and help to address the problems in these practical areas of people's professional lives? Um, now, you've written a couple of books that mm -hmm. I'd like you to talk about. Oh, I don't know which one was first. The first one was A Lesson and Tell, A Baha'i Focus on the Environment. And that was when the Baha'i community in the United Kingdom said they, would, they were doing a series on various social issues. They had one on development, and they would like to do one on the environment. And could I write a book on a, what Baha'i Faith has to say about the environment? That book was the result of, of that request, and it basically looks at environmental issues and the different Baha'i teachings and how the two relate and help to find ways forward to solving some of the problems of the environment. So that was the first book. Then after this time in the Secretariat for the Rio Earth Summit, in 1992, when I knew I was going to be put in charge of the system-wide Earthwatch and therefore implementing the issues of sustainable development you know, at the global level through the United Nations, I thought, well, I really need to think through 
what does sustainability mean for me? How do I bring together my Baha'i values and my understanding of, of the Baha'i teachings with my work in the environment as a scientist on the environment and my work in development with the United Nations and helping developing countries and therefore the economic dimension, even though I'm not really trained as an economist, but I learned a lot about it just by doing it and create a sort of a synthesis. And so I wrote this second book called The Eco Principle, Ecology and Economics in Symbiosis, which was published both by a Baha'i publisher and by a commercial publisher specialized in development issues and new kinds of thinking to solve the problems of the world. It's again, it's an application of Baha'i principles, much less directly, but really trying to help economists to understand that they need to look at the environmentalist side of things and environmentalists to see that you need to also understand how the economy works and, and looking at both of them from the point of view of system science and complex systems perspective, saying, well, how do we understand how this whole complex thing works together between economy and the environment? And where might it take us if we can take a more systems view of these issues and uh, address them together as we go ahead towards a, a new kind of a world civilization? And so that was really trying to thinking through those issues and putting them on paper as a way to share those ideas with, with other people. And it's been used as a textbook in university courses and various things for people who want to explore the issues from that perspective. You're on the faculty for the Wilmette Institute. I was wondering if you could describe what the Wilmette Institute is and what courses or course are you providing at the Wilmette Institute? Well, the Wilmette Institute is a sort of an online learning center under the Baha'is of the United States, most of his courses are on specifically Baha'i topics and addressed largely at Baha'is. But with a course that I set up for them, I don't know, it must be about 10 years ago now, on sustainable development and the prosperity of humankind, it came out of courses that I'd already been teaching here in Europe and also had developed for the International Environment Forum. And so we thought it would be good to offer this as an online course through the Movement Institute. I became the lead faculty for that course and got some other members of the International Environment Forum in the U.S. and elsewhere to serve as faculty as well. And that course has now been going on for, for quite a few years. It's offered just about every year. Because it is not specifically only looking at the Baha'is, but looking at the larger dimensions, it looks at other spiritual values as they relate to sustainable development and attracts other people as well. Then we created a second course with climate change becoming an important issue. One of our members was thinking we need to do a course on climate change and its spiritual and ethical dimensions. Again, first developing some courses for the Environment Forum, the course materials. Then we suggested we could do this also. And so that course has now been a very successful course. We've been having just about every year now. It's an interfaith course, and therefore it looks at all the sacred scriptures as they relate to issues of climate change. And so we've had people taking in like a a Jewish rabbi and a group of, of Catholic nuns and so on who've also taken the course because it was useful for them to see how spiritual principles relate to their own spiritual teachings and to the climate change issue, which we all need to be responding to. And we've just started a course that's running at the moment right now, in fact, on the Baha'i views of agriculture. And so I'm helping one of the faculty members for that course. So I'm actually involved in three courses at the Institute and have been for quite a few years, and I very much enjoy the opportunity to exchange with the people who can online take these courses and uh, develop their own spiritual understanding of these critical issues and things they can do in their own lives to address them. Arthur, as I look through your career, 
where you described for me your first job was diving into the ocean and observing the coral reefs. And then today, seeing the disintegration of our coral reef situation, what is your outlook and how is that informed on where the world is going in regards to environmental sustainability? Well, people often look at me and say, you've been working on these problems for more than 50 years. How can you still be optimistic? And I think it's only because I'm a Baha'i and therefore I have a vision of the future world civilization that will emerge out of this, this age of transition that can gives me hope for the future. Because clearly in the short term, you know, in spite of all of our efforts with the United Nations and in many other ways, we still haven't turned a corner. We're still going in the wrong direction. And as you point out, you know, looking at coral reefs, when I show my pictures of coral reefs and, and talk about coral reefs, people say, it's not like that anymore because my pictures were taken in the early 1970s. And the, the decline in reefs has been so significant in the last 30 years or so, and it's getting steadily worse. So you might say, you know, in the short term, things don't look very good. On the other hand, I think it's clear that at some point we have to turn a corner, whether we do it through acts of consultative will you know, and really you know, say we need to now change our behavior and start doing things differently, or whether it's going to take some kind of crisis or catastrophe to force us to change. It's more and more, the longer we wait, the more that it's obvious there's more likely to be a catastrophe than some more intelligent, conscious way of changing our behavior, changing our values, and changing our system. In being involved, both you might say on the business side and the art side, through our Baha'i-inspired organizations and thinking a lot about these issues, you know, I really sort of think that we're probably heading for very difficult times in the years immediately ahead. I sort of hope, in fact, that maybe, maybe if we have, say, an economic collapse, we have some kind of a financial crisis where people lose confidence in the world's currencies and therefore stop trading, that might shut down the trade in fossil fuels early enough to save us from a climate catastrophe and be less painful than a third world war or some other kinds of, of crises or catastrophes one could imagine and be easier to recover from. So you might say in a negative sort of optimistic way, that's sort of my, my hope for the immediate future, that we need something needs to slam on the brakes in a system that is sort of rapidly raping the planet and its resources and its environment and degrading its capacity to support people in order for us to start building on the kinds of principles that the Baha'i faith has brought for community and for a more moderate kind of civilization, less materialistic, more focused on the social and spiritual dimensions of life, which is really where humanity needs to go in the years ahead. So I'm still, you might say, optimistic in the long term and realistic about the possibilities or the challenges of the short term. In fact, one of the things I did in Samoa when I first got started was that I found an area that had been researched by a scientific team back in 1917 to 1920. And I was able to relocate precisely the same place where they had surveyed the state of the coral reefs and do the same surveys in the same way. And uh, other scientists have come in since then and continued to follow on those areas. So we're now, this year, looking at the 100 years' worth of data on the decline of the coral reefs, documenting those changes and looking at both how bad things have become and also to some extent the resilience, the possibility that we've seen times when the reefs have bounced back. You know, they've been damaged by, say, human impact or impact, and then they've had a capacity to recover. So that is another thing that gives me some optimism 
that once we can reduce the pressures that we're putting on our natural resources, like reefs and many others, that the systems have a capacity to recover. And if we have the scientific wisdom to help them and, and encourage them and to remove the pressures that are damaging them in time, that they will be, in fact, be able to be able to rebuild much of the beauty and riches of this planet in the decades ahead. Arthur, what is your current work? Well, apart from a number of meetings and projects and things, I've also been sort of documenting some of the, the work that I did with the United Nations on indicators of sustainable development, because I think it's important to know the history of these things. I've written several chapters for books recently on where we've come from and where we need to go. But it seemed to me that one of the biggest needs now was to give young people of today some hope in the future. So much of what I've done on the environmental side is depressing. You know, all the things going wrong and the collapse of coral reefs and the environmental problems of the world and the challenges we face, it's very hard to inspire young people with stories like that. And so it seemed to me that I needed to do something to give young people hope. So I'm just tr finishing writing a book for young people to try to give them some hope in the future. And it's a book that looks at, at each dimension of the unsustainability of our present world, all the environmental problems, and what we can do to solve them, where we have the you know, solutions, we know the technologies must be done, and the changes that are needed to address them. And then looks at the, the social problems and some of the, the solutions of social problems, inspired by Baha'i principles and other things, other positive things that are happening. It looks at the environmental, the economic situation in the world, and what we have to change in the economy to build an economy that is meeting human needs and creating the wealth we need, but also is you know, creating employment and eliminating poverty, the other things that we need to do for the economy. And then it looks at the individual values that a young person needs to have today to have the strength to face these problems. So how do you build a life that can be constructive and altruistic and, and of service to society in the world of today and have the strength to face the challenges that inevitably everybody's going to face? And then it looks more collectively at how do we go beyond the material side and look at the social and even spiritual sides of life and the wealth that we can find in those dimensions as we try to take our individual lives in a constructive way towards the future in spite of a, the, the changes the world is going through around us. And then looking at the visions of the future and how we can, building on those spiritual foundations as well as the, the scientific side of things, start constructively building new kinds of future that will respond to humanity's needs in the, in the decades ahead. So it's a relatively short book. I'm just trying to, how do I package this in a way that young people read? People don't read books anymore. So I'm trying to design an internet version of it that will be easier for people to read and, and absorb you know, as a way of helping young people to look positively at the future and be inspired with, with what they can do themselves in their own lives to take this future forward in a positive way. So it sounds like that work is nearly finished. Yes, I'm just formatting it at the moment. So. What do you see you doing next? Well, a lot of people have said I should write an autobiography, that I've had you know, a rather interesting sort of life in various places. In fact, even courses I've been given at university, the students are going to say, can we help you write your biography? I mean, you, know, you ought to document this story that, of what you've been doing to try to be of service in the world. So I've been gradually collecting materials for that. But then there's so much that needs to be done still. I mean, the other big challenge now is with the sustainable development goals, where the governments have signed up to a very ambitious agenda for the changes they need, a you know, fundamental transformation in society and the economy. But while they've signed up to this and they've approved this at the highest level in the United Nations, they don't really have the means to implement it very well. 
I mean, they're all the contrary forces in society. We see them today, the negative side of things, the fear and the, the prejudice that is rising and the xenophobia and all the negative things that are rising in the world, the hate and, and so on. It's hard to counteract those things. And I think a lot still needs to be done. And I still continue working with, with the World Bank, with the United Nations, other organizations to take that agenda forward. It's the complement. We need the spiritual side of things and we need the material side and both needs to advance. And so as long as my health allows and I hope I still have a few decades ahead to continue this work. I will try to be of service you know, both in the international community on the intergovernmental side and also uh, on the Baha'i side in taking this forward. And in fact, I've just done a paper for UNEP on why UNEP should engage more with religions because I think there's a lot that can be done to bring together the spiritual knowledge system and the scientific knowledge system as we address these problems together as we go ahead. Now, you're still involved with Nairobi, no? Yes. Can you characterize for us what the problems Nairobi is facing from an environmental point of view and your outlook? We look what's been happening in the last few decades. In many ways, for a long time, Africa was the continent that was falling behind. I mean, China has driven its economy to the point where it's raised many millions of people out of poverty. It's reduced extreme poverty to a considerable extent. But some parts of South Asia are still behind, and particularly Africa has struggled for a long time. And it's not that it doesn't have the resources or the human capacities. A lot of it's been a challenge of governance, weak governance or corrupt governance or so on and so forth. There are lots of hope of things happening. And you can see people developing social enterprises, people who've gone to other parts of the world, acquired the skills, going back to Africa to work in building things in Africa. So I think from the point of view of both what I experienced living for several years in, in Nairobi and what I've seen working in a few other new African countries and what I've been reading about that, I think in spite of the weaknesses at the government's level and the, the problems of corruption and so on, that they can do a lot to be already transferring the communities at the community level and learning to live by new values and I think the kind of things that the Baha'is are trying to do around the world to communicate a new set of values and a new spirit of solidarity and cooperation at the community level. Because it's there, as that foundation gets stronger, then it'll be easier to bring the changes at the higher levels of national governments as we go ahead. So I think those are the, the challenges that are being faced, you know, not only in Nairobi, but across Africa, is to develop a current against the decline, the, the difficulties that the countries are facing, and to build on the human resources and the natural resources to create a new Africa. And there are signs, that, at least embryonically, that's happening in many places. Well, Arthur, I want to thank you so much for providing your Baha'i perspective on this issue. Thank you. Well, you know, we all need to be working together to address the challenges of the world. Nobody can sort of sit back and say the world's going to take care of itself. And I think if each of us can say in our own small ways, in the lives that we're living in our community and elsewhere, we can do something to make a positive change in the world. And I've tried certainly across my life to do that. And I think everybody can do their little bit to help that whole process go forward. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Arthur Dahl, who has worked in the field of sustainable development for over 50 years. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
Confusion is a fact that'll mask the reunion. Union of men, when will it be? See how desperately we need unity. But who am I to unify nations and peoples? Domes and the steeples, we can be equal. If only we care. So I put my hands in the air, cause this is my air. This is my prayer. This is what I breathe in. This is what I believe. I wanna guide the wayward. Awaken the heedless and free the captives. My air, this is my prayer. This is what I breathe in. This is what I believe. I wanna guide the wayward, lead the atlas. Awaken the heedless and free the captives. Yeah. the sky no fear no pain with my hands held high cause this is my air this is my prayer this is what i breathe in this is what i believe i want to guide the wayward lead the hapless awaken the heedless and free the captives my air this is my prayer this is what i breathe in this is what i believe i want to guide the wayward lead the hapless awaken the heedless and free the captives yeah give me Give me wings so I so I can soar so I can soar and get closer to you. Yeah. Give me, give me wings so I I can soar. i 
Feel the rhythm with 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.